Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast, where teachers and leaders from the education community come to share their wisdom and experience to help educators survive, thrive, and better serve the needs of students. I'm one of the co-hosts, Tim Pope. Welcome to the 180 Days Education Podcast. I'm Karen Greenhouse, one of your hosts, and we are so excited today to have a former boss of both Tim and myself, but also a really good friend and a amazing woman, Karen Cow, who is currently the CEO of 10 Strands and the California Environmental Literacy Initiative Project Director. Well, thank you for having me, both of you. It's, uh, you know, the first time I'm on a call with you and I don't get to tell you what to do. So, um <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. Although I suspect you could, and we both would do whatever you said. I'm just, I'm just saying. Well, maybe you'll, maybe you'll all be a little more environmentally literate when we're done. <laughs> that is our hope. That is one of my questions coming up. But why don't you explain what is Ten Strands? Because I was going to read the mission statement, but it's probably better just coming straight from you. Yeah. So, um, you know, when we stopped working together, I, I really wanted to. Um, I wanted to stay in education, but I wanted to move my work closer to, you know, a deep personal interest that I've had for a long time, um, the environment. And I'm like, how how might I work at the intersection of those two places, at the intersection of education and the environment? And I met somebody around the time we were um, selling key curriculum that wanted to do the same thing. And we, we got together and we were like, how, how do we, you know, we, we're aware of all of this environmental illiteracy, right? We're, we're, we're moving through the world watching what it means when, when we're illiterate, you know, uh, fires in California being foremost in our minds. And, and so we started 10 Strands to create a little bit of disruption, really, in the education system and to catalyze a body of work around um, student environmental literacy. And we thought, let's not do stuff that others are doing really well. Let's us do what we think we can do well, which is to raise money and to get in partnerships with, for example, state agencies like the EPA and the California Department of Ed. And then, you know, based on you know, a lot of the experience that I had working with you guys and, and, and working with school districts and county offices of ed and schools, you know, how might we um, how might we take all of that knowing of that network and somehow sort of work in public-private partnership to to move the needle on student environmental literacy? And not in a way where we burden teachers even more but actually in a way where the work that we do is integrated with what they're doing anyway so we've been very very deliberate about that it's not it's not environmental education of the type that you might have had when you were at school where occasionally you went on a field trip but how do we think on a day-to-day basis how you might integrate sort of deep knowing about the interdependence of human system, you know, human systems and, 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 and natural systems into the work that students are already doing. So it's very sort of context oriented, place-based oriented. 
uh, the work that we're doing. So but high, high, high level, we're a field catalyst for environmental literacy. So can I put you on the spot for a second yeah. and ask, do you have, because I'm just trying, I'm trying to get a concrete sense. Greenhouse told me we're allowed to be stupid now and I don't have to pretend like I know everything in the podcast and I can ask dumb questions. So my original question I'd written down was to explain what you mean by environmental literacy. Like that, that term literacy is something that gets used a lot for a lot of different topics. And, but then you just said something that I found intriguing, which was, like environmental science, like it was a course, like in my last publishing gig, I sold an environmental science textbook. Um, if you could, a concrete example of what you mean by integration into the day-to-day uh, learning experience of a student. So I'll just give you one little example. So in California, um, every fourth grade student, history, social science, learns about the gold rush. What they don't learn about is the impact that the gold rush had on, for example, the San Francisco Bay and all of the mercury that persists in the bay as a result of those practices that were happening upstream. So you would basically take a topic like the gold rush, which every kid learns about, and you would take a look at that topic through, let's say, an environmental lens where what you're emphasizing with the kids is that interdependence between human social systems and natural systems and to make it part of the way that we think (laughs) and so it's it's a you know it's systems thinking right at the end of the day it's systems thinking but with a particular focus on human impact on the environment so I was looking at, you sent us that really good article, which uh, those of you listening, we will attach a link to that in our show notes. But you have the three strategic priorities that 10 Strands has. And the first one is advocate for the expansion of environmental literacy in California public schools. So is what the example you just gave, is that sort of a an example that ties into that strategic priority, would you say? No, that like, I feel like that's like the example I gave was like at the level of a, you know, a classroom experience with a with a teacher and a student. Right at the at the level of advocating for it, it's more at the level of working with the legislature and influencing, for example, our education code or our public resources code to include things like climate and environmental literacy um, in the work that we do. And 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 we've chosen in California. Um, to articulate something that we called California's environmental principles and concepts. And these are big ideas, big environmental ideas that express that interdependence that I was talking about. And we're saying, you know, at the Department of Ed, you've adopted the next generation science standards, for example. The next thing after we adopt the standards is we revise our frameworks and those frameworks give direction to publishers. So, we have written into the education code, into statute, that when California revises its frameworks, for example, the science framework, we in California want to make sure that environmental principles and concepts are integrated into those frameworks. And further, that if you're a publishing company and you want to publish materials for California, K-8, through and you want to submit your materials to the State Board of Ed for approval, your instructional materials need to include connections to these environmental principles and concepts. So that's what I mean by advocacy. 
it's literally at the level of sort of influencing. It's state policy. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. But you do so much more than just helping change state policy because, I mean, I know I was briefly involved at the very beginning, but right. you, you created amazing resources and training and professional development for teachers. Right. So is that part of the advocacy as well, or is that more on the second one where you're building the capacity? So that work that we did with, with you back then was the first thing that we did as 10 strands. So we became aware of, well, first of all, these environmental principles and concepts. And part of the legislation that enacted those uh, called for the creation of a model curriculum to demonstrate to teachers, you know, if you're doing history, social science, or if you're doing science, here, here's what it looks like if you were to take these environmental principles and concepts and integrate them into, into those two subjects. And that model curriculum is what you, you first saw me working with, Karen, right? And so it was 85 units, 45 of them were history, social science, and 40 of them were science. And we, um, we partnered, 10 strands partnered with the state agency that was responsible for that curriculum to work with teachers, to do teacher professional development, to get, that, to get those materials into the classroom. And so the first two or three years of the existence of the business um, was really about that partnership with that state agency. And then we got some really good advice from somebody who's a subject matter expert in the state. His name is Dr. Gerald Lieberman. And he said, that's great that you're helping to get the model curriculum into classrooms. But if you look under the hood, what's under the hood are these environmental principles and concepts. And you know, if we work together, we can bring those forward and, you know, we can work with existing statute and strengthen that existing statute and make it a requirement that not only do they get expressed through the model curriculum, but they also get expressed through um, this integration into other subjects. And so, so far, we've integrated them into science, history, social science, health, arts, and right now we're working on the math framework. And in the math framework, we're focused on uh, modeling and data science. Because you can imagine, you could have some super interesting contexts. <laughs> yeah, like real world data. Absolutely. Right. See, and this is me resisting the urge to go on my rant about the importance of data literacy being much more important than pre-calculus and all the other crud that we currently force students. Yeah, feel, feel free. Oh, I'm with you on that. <laughs> Tim, that's part of our, um, what is it, detracking and uh, changing the math curriculum episodes. You know, another piece of this that I've come to a little later, um, and it's because of the partnerships that we've forged, is you cannot decouple uh, environmental literacy from environmental justice. and so. One of the things that we're doing with the math framework is that we're partnering with, um, do you remember Kendall Brown from UCLA? Yeah, I yeah. remember. I, I remember Kendall. I've heard him speak. Right. So he, you know, he's focused his entire like professional life on equity in math education. And um, we're working with uh, just somebody we recently met, Dr. Christopher Childs, who is focused on culturally responsive teaching mm -hmm. and so we're taking their background in equity and culturally responsive teaching and combining it with our 
background in uh, environmental literacy and and the sort of natural intersection for us to sort of meet each other is well, first of all, you know, in the modeling and data science realm, but also that sort of stretch, not even a stretch, but that that inclusion of thinking about environmental justice and communities that are most impacted by uh, by the environmental issues that we're all living with, right, as it relates to clean air and water and soil and other things and climate impacts. So you're sort of walking into one of the questions I'd written down, which is, in your opinion, is science education political? And if so... How do you address or how if you do you think we should address concerns that folks may have that public education is being used to promote a specific partisan political view? Um, no, science education is science. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's political. I don't think, you know, I mean, this, 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 the science is there with fully there with respect to um, for example, climate change and the sensible folks who um, created the very elegant next generation science standards um, include climate science from middle school through high school directly and proximally in the earlier grades. And it's based on science. It's not based on politics. And, you know, I've talked to groups of teachers. We, we hosted, we sponsored actually a climate summit for the California Science Teachers Association, which is now the California Association of Science Educators. And I was asked that question. I was asked that question. We've we run it two years in a row and I opened the second summit and um, there was a Q&A after the keynote. And they said, you know, do you think it's okay to teach climate science and I said it's in your standards and your standards are state board of ed approved and your state board of ed is appointed by your governor yes it's okay just 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 teach your standards <laughs> right right so if you weren't in California so if you were if you were speaking to a group in a state that was not California. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say Texas because that gives you another extreme example, but pick another state. Um, mm-hmm. Would your response be the the same or would be different? Because not every state has, I mean, not every state has the standards to back up on. Because I mean, that, I appreciate that point, which is the state has already made a determination that this is what we consider science education based on these standards. Right. And where you're just working and advocating based on that. Um, if you were invited to go speak in Nevada, Iowa. Uh, Iowa, fine example. Um, would your would your message change at all? I think that my personal message would not change. My where I ground myself is um, what teachers are living with and what they have the freedom to do, you know? And so I, you know, I think that I mean, my personal message certainly wouldn't change. But if a teacher is in a state and she is, and climate change, for example, is not anywhere in the body of work that she's responsible for um, doing or covering, um, it would be hard for her to take that position, right? Because 
it's not maybe expressed in her scope and sequence for that particular class. And so, you know, I would I would go with what that teacher was able to do based on where she was based on where she's located. So do you think that tan strands could it only have come about in California because it is California? I think it has a lot to do with it, but I, I, this is something I learned when I first moved into this sector. Um, there was a moment in time, around the time that we started Ten Strands, where the federal government was considering um, supporting more work related to education and the environment. And a number of states, 10, 12, 16 of them, wrote sort of blueprints for environmental literacy. So I'm just going from memory, but it was it was the states that we did well with key curriculums books. <laughs> what a surprise, right? Oh, inquiry, inquiry, discovery. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so um, you can just you can yeah you could imagine the political map, right? But there was a number of states that wrote blueprints for environmental literacy, anticipating that there might be some federal money to support their work. But California, obviously, is by far the largest state. And we had a, we had a, the moment that we showed up, I sometimes say this, Karen, that if, if, I don't know whether the door would have been open if we'd arrived five years earlier or five years later. I, I think we arrived right, right at the right moment because California adopted the next generation science standards in 2013. And we launched 10 strands in January 2013. So, I mean, so you've been around for, what, eight years? Would you say that it's all over California now, this this environmental literacy? Is it is it working or is it in certain spots where it's really good and where you're still trying to get into others in California? Yeah, I think it's I think it's entered the education vernacular in a way that that it definitely wasn't when we first started. Um People didn't even use the term environmental literacy. It was it was environmental education typically, which meant right. you know that thing that I said earlier, which was something that was occasional for some kids in maybe richer places. Um, so because of that work that we've done at the sort of the, the upstream work, I do think not not just us. I mean us and our partners. Um, I do think it's sort of entered the. I do think it's entered the stream, and I, I do think people talk about it more than ever before. Like the fact that we were even given that Distinguished Contribution Award is kind of a mark of that, you know? And and then just one example of the way in which maybe it's scaling in a way that previously it wasn't at all. Um, when we first started this, there were no county offices of ed. So California has 58 county offices of ed and 1,000 school districts and 10,000 schools. So at the county office of ed level, it's a unit size that's manageable, 58. There were no dedicated specialists, no dedicated environmental literacy specialists. And now there are seven of those county offices of ed, six or seven of those county offices of ed have dedicated environmental literacy specialists. And I, I think that's directly as a result of the work that we and our partners started eight years ago. So for example... The first one to make that decision was San Mateo County. They've got 23 districts, 93,000 kids. And um, that environmental literacy specialist thinks about, you know, school grounds and facilities, the greening of school grounds and facilities, 
the integration of environmental literacy into teaching and learning, and then how to forge partnerships between the formal school system and the non-formal school system. And she's in a place focused on that. And then we support her um, to network and to and to meet with other people in other county offices of Ed who are making this similar commitment. And they together collectively are now a force. And so, for example, they together just launched a webinar series where they've done five webinars focused on making the case for environmental literacy um, in county offices of Ed. So 10 Strands is not necessarily the provider of or the creator of these the resources or the curriculum. You're more the producer, maybe? Kind of putting everyone together. Isn't that what a producer does? We're kind of like kind of like the grease and the glue, you know? Like we 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 don't want to be doing work that other the others do better than us. And so so we sort of we want to move the whole field along and we want to um support it moving along by raising money largely for from philanthropy so that we can partner strategically to get the work done so like a strategic unit for us is a county office of ed right because of how much influence it has uh, a school district is also a strategic unit for us um for reasons largely relate related to equity being in partnership with for example the lawrence hall of science at uc berkeley is a strategic unit harold's there so i so i work on a weekly basis with harold's boss harold yeah so for example we really wanted to sort of stimulate teacher professional learning in this area so we partnered with the california subject matter project there's the math project the english project the, the science project so they're a network of 90 sites <laughs> across the state. And so we have been in relationship with them. We're in a, the fourth year of our relationship with them where we raised some private philanthropy and we partnered with them to integrate environmental literacy into their summer institutes for teachers. And then they carry out all the work. They're the experts. They carry out all the work and we just provide a little bit of the, like I said, the sort of grease and the glue, right? Right. So I want to ask you a question that may lead you to repeat yourself a little bit, but it's because we're building, we're planning on building an episode around this whole idea of equity. And you've made a couple statements in the last half hour about like when you talked about the um, importance of justice in science education and your work with uh, Dr. Childs. Um, and then you just used the term again. So I'm just going to ask an open-ended question and let you run a little bit which is, what does equity look like in science education? Well, I, I, I'm not only focused on science education. Um, I'm, I'm also, you know, I mean, that's one of the, so I'm, I'm not directly answering your question, but I'm going to come to it. One of the things that's so interesting about this topic that we represent is that, well, A, it lends itself to interdisciplinary work. And B, standalone, we can make connections between these sort of big environmental ideas and these interdependent statements uh, to many subjects, you know, including the ones I, I, I talked about earlier. So for us, the focus has been science, history, social science, health, the arts, and now, and now math, right? And, you know, in terms of equity, I, I, I think... I can almost not really sort of express myself around equity without also thinking about cultural 
relevancy or culturally responsive teaching and i and i and i think that's where i go most fully with this you know how do you how do you work with students in a place based on deeply understanding that place and that population of students and the community that they're from and the community that they're in and we can only really do that if we are doing the work in deep partnership with leaders for example in the school districts in those places so i'll just give you a concrete example um Rialto Unified School District is um, east of LA, quite far east of LA. And they have a science coordinator who also happens to do career technical education. And she's from Rialto. She grew up in Rialto and she's from Rialto. And she was eager to design all of their science programs based on environmental themes. And rather than imposing her ideas or our ideas or the state's ideas onto the community, she went to the community and she went to the kids and she said to them, you know, let's explore this together and let's explore how we might sort of build our science materials. And what they came up with, one of the big themes that they came up with that was an issue to that community was uh, water contamination. And the kids in that community got into a relationship with the local water district and the kids started to use scientific instrumentation. All of the kids started to use scientific instrumentation to measure, for example, the water quality. And then they built and they built their science lessons around that. So I think for me in terms of equity, it's well, first of all, it's if you're working within a school district as a unit of change, you you get the opportunity to say, we're going to do this for all third graders in all schools across the district. And not only in these pockets of schools that have, um, you know, I don't know, slightly well, wealthier zip codes or teachers who have a particular interest, but that it's a district decision to get to, you know, all third graders or all, or, or all middle grade bands or all elementary bands in terms of that kind of equity. And then, and then sort of dropping closer to where the action is. It's like, how do we how do we make this work relevant to these kids in this place? Well, by going to them and to their families and then and then and and valuing that as sort of rich <laughs> and relevant. Um yeah, I, I guess that's how I, I see it, Tim. So are you are you actively out in the field, like with the teachers or with the students, or is it more you're working with the district level? Whenever we set up a new partnership, it's not like we're not a foundation, right? We're not. We don't just receive. We don't receive any grant proposals or anything like that. It's 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 that we have this theory of action that we think will move environmental literacy in California, and based on that theory of action, we seek partners that can help us fulfill it and in the very early days of those partnerships we're we're in the room with them as they're as they're with teachers 
not to check up on them or anything, but to really just get a sense of how they work with teachers right. and, and how teachers respond to that partnership. So we, we sit, like, so for example, in San Mateo, you know, the first three years in San Mateo, I was in every minute of every meeting um, with the partners that we were working on with the professional learning. And then over time, I'm less close to it, although there's somebody on my team who's there. But I can only feel if it's any good. It's like a ground-truthing exercise. I can only feel if it's any good if I'm there. Sure. I, I can't feel that if I just read a report that they write after the fact. So in districts or, or school systems that have, say, adopted the environmental literacy and embedded it, are you doing any kind of assessment or research to see how the students are doing, like how it's impacting them or in their learning and their understanding? Yeah, we work with an evaluator, um, actually somebody that used to be involved with IMP, Integrated Math Project. Um, he was involved in the evaluation of that. His name's Mark St. John, and he runs an organization called Inverness Research. So he's, he's you know, he's been evaluating the whole program for a number of years now. And then, you know, specifically, like, for example, with the California Subject Matter Project, whenever they do teacher institutes or the work we do in San Mateo or some of the other counties, they definitely do... Um, they do evaluation at the level of, you know, at the level of the institute. So really a measure of the shift in uh, teachers, teachers knowledge, teachers experience. And then in a, in a number of models, we have these capstone events where the teachers come back after they've taught, for example, maybe units that they've developed and, um, and talk about the impact of those units on the kids. I, I want to make sure I'm not making stereotypes, which is when I think of most science teachers that I, I have worked with, do work with now, mm -hmm. um, I, I wouldn't take a whole lot of arm mm -hmm. twisting to convince them about the importance of environmental education. And they're relatively educated on this topic already, which is in contrast to our shared work in mathematics, where we often were having to be evan evangelists for research-based pedagogy and then providing the tools um, and uh, for teachers to be able to implement it. So is that true for, on this, are my stereotypes reasonably correct or am I way off base? And if so, what is the reality of your experience? Um, your stereotype is not off base for uh, high school science teachers um, and, or maybe even middle school. But um for elementary school, the, it's, it's, the issue is um, that not much science has been taught for a number of years, going all the way back to, you know, No Child Left Behind. And actually, our good friend Jim Ryan was just in an article that he wrote for the Heckinger Report recently, was talking about the, num the, the number of instructional minutes given over to, to, to science compared to other subjects in early grades. And it's something like 90 minutes is given over to ELA, right. 60 minutes given over to math, and 18 minutes given over to science and other subjects. And so there's a huge lack of confidence in elementary school teachers around science because of this overwhelming focus on math and English. And it's been made even worse by COVID because of, as they've shifted to distance learning, 
they've dropped everything other than those two subjects that are that are tested um, as as often as those subjects are tested. I think what's been interesting about working with elementary school teachers with as it relates to this topic is they relate around how rich the contexts are and how they can use those contexts to get at really an integrated approach, to get at sort of math and English and science. And yeah, it's the interdisciplinary piece. Is any part of your advocacy work with teacher education programs? Because I totally agree with what you're saying. It makes perfect sense. I mean, poor elementary school teachers are asked to be expert in everything, and then you have to make decisions based on the limited amount of time and all the points you made are understood. Like I just know, like even as a parent, like I've always been amazed when I talk to an elementary t- teacher about how incredibly articulate they can be around um, my children's struggles with the literacy and like, here's what's going on and here's what we need to do. But my question for you is just uh, in that spirit, is any part of your advocacy looking at um, science teacher ed- or elementary teacher education programs to advocate um, helping um, develop some of that knowledge, some of that confidence in teachers as they're preparing to enter the profession? Yeah, that's a really good question. So last year, we partnered with the, the, the two primary university systems in California, the UC system and the CSU system. And we partnered with both those systems and we hosted an event at UCLA focused on um, climate and environmental literacy. And we basically produced a report. So we published a report. And then when the report was published, we hosted this event to sort of launch the report. And we had keynote speakers. I can send you the link link to the whole day. You know, like former Governor Brown spoke, Janet Napolitano spoke. It was really a... Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a very high-profile event. And the focus was on pre-service and in-service teacher professional learning. And what we're in the process of doing now, that group, is getting organized around writing a proposal to stand up a joint center that will engage in research related to that topic to drive that very agenda that you that you just talked about. In your article, one of the things you said that your goals were to was to take this work that you're doing to scale. And obviously, that's to scale in California. Sounds like you're really making some headway there. But do you ever think of like impacting other states, like taking your model and trying to pass it along to other states so that they also can start thinking about this environmental literacy approach? Yeah. So on some days, I think California is enough. California is like eight times bigger than the country I grew up in. So, <laughs> Which is Scotland, in case anyone was wondering. If you couldn't quite place the accent. <laughs> so, so like sometimes I think like eight Scotlands is enough. Um, <laughs> and then somebody once said to us, actually, like a, a program officer in one of the foundations that gave us early funding. They said, you know, there needs to be a 10 strands in every state you know, an entity that basically advocates for, agitates for this this kind of work to be more prevalent. Um, so we do find ourselves increasingly involved in conversations with other places. And the Aspen Institute, just maybe a month ago, 
launched a new initiative called the um, k12climateaction.org. And they are trying to gather like a broad coalition to, to start to think about how to do this across, across the country. And we're sort of early, early group at the table um, as, that, as that body of work is, is getting started. So people are definitely interested in it beyond California. And then there's also, you know, like we've got in the math world, we had NCTM. In the environmental ed world, there's a group called NAAEE, so the North American Association of Environmental Education or Educators. And so we work with them as well. So, so Will Parrish, my business partner, he's on the board of NAAEE so that we can keep people informed about what's going on in California and we can learn about what's going on in other places. So I only have one other question on my list that has nothing to do with anything we've been talking about, but I'll ask it anyway. In reading your, uh, looking at your website, reading your article, you talk about um, a commitment to helping foster family engagement as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, what's your trick? Like that's one of the toughest things in, I mean, regardless of the subject area, like trying to engage families is always such a challenge. So I'm just curious as to how your group is uh, taking on that challenge and how you respond to it. Yeah, it, it really depends on the partners that we're working with. But um, at the level of, it's, it's rarer when we're talking about County Office of Education partners, but it's more common when we're talking about district partners. Um, and so, for example, that, 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 that Rialto USD example I gave you, they're very deliberate about engaging families in the process. San Francisco Unified, um, the same. San Francisco Unified actually has a, it's rare because it has a dedicated environmental literacy specialist and there's there's a huge family engagement component to what they do. Um, but it's come up for us actually like more recently around distance learning resources because <laughs> I mean you've heard all of the stories but, but it's families are finding themselves with kids who are getting through the materials that have been given to them by their by their teacher in two hours and then what did they do for the rest of the day and so we've been working one of the one partnerships that we've forged is with orange county department of ed and we're working they've got a group called inside the outdoors and we're working with them to get family to take what they previously used to do with the kids um on field trips and repurposing or rethinking those resources um, for for distance learning, but but particularly written for parents rather than written for teachers who kids who would like go, who would go on the field trip. And that sort of addresses my, uh, I guess, last question is: I know on your website you have a bunch of resources. Mm-hmm. So if I'm just a teacher listening to this, and I'm not in California, mm-hmm. can I? find things because it sounds fascinating and I would like to try to implement some things on my own. Is that free to me or or is it going to be hard for me to figure out how to use the resources? Yeah, I think that the best way for a teacher in California to plug in is through, um, through the relationship that they have with their school district because the school district is still largely responsible for 
instructional materials and professional learning. Um, and then that district in turn has a relationship with the County Office of Ed. There are many resources available. And, you know, I mean, I, I always advise teachers to sort of belong to professional organizations as well. So like I mentioned, NAAAE, for example, the local affiliate in California is called AEOE, you know, so um, teachers can belong to that. But there isn't actually like the, the instructional materials or the or the supplemental resources are in different places. Um, I mean, there's the free model curriculum that I mentioned at the very, very beginning of the interview. But I do think there's a need. We're working, we're working on a project right now with some county offices of it to sort of bring resources from community partners to teachers through a little common database. Um, but there is a need for, I think, a platform that supports this sort of nationally, sort of like at the state level nationally and even internationally in the way that when you think about a product like Newzella, I don't know if you guys know that product. Yeah, I know. It's a, Newzella sort of takes topical articles um, from, let's say, for the example, New York Times, and they lexile rate them so that you have a little kid version of the article and a middle school kid version of the article and an older kid version of the article. So it um, it's News ELA. Right. And so one of the things that we're thinking about right now is working in partnership with somebody to launch such a platform that would bring all of these resources together that are a little bit buried otherwise um, with a view to, you know, organize the resources in such a way that kids can actually take action in their local communities. Um, because when you talk to kids, that's what they want to do. They, they, they want to be empowered around this topic of, you know, climate change in particular, right? It'd be interesting, this probably isn't podcast material, but it'd be interesting to see if something with the, the math modeling work you're doing um, could be integrated. Because, you know, the, are you familiar with the New York Times and the um, monthly deal they do with math modeling? Oh, no, I don't know about the math modeling. Yeah, they have, um, so they do, they have a monthly feature basically where they take a data set and they present it to students with some questions. And then, um, I don't know if it's a week or a few days later, then they present, um, they give some of the support for that. And then they do a chat every month to have a discussion about it. Um, anyway, so I was just thinking, I was just putting dots together when you were sharing that. They're like, yeah, like the, you have data sets for the New York Times. That, pro that project already exists. Right. And uh, you guys are doing some engaging with that, uh, looking at that through that data lens would be, would be a total math teacher bias. <laughs> well, but Steve put me in touch with Comap, and you know when you look at their international competition, and you look at the contexts for the 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 math modeling competition, like something like when we just scrolled through them, like ninety percent of those contexts are environment based. It's just a very natural thing. That's what I'm thinking. Is there's a community project bring in that you know, culturally relevant problem. And then through that, you're doing the environmental literacy, but you're also doing the math and the history stuff. So to me, it's very project-based learning as well. Definitely project-based learning. It's definitely real ties to civic engagement. You know, there's another project that we worked on 
um, with a with a teacher in uh, Brawley, which is near the Salton Sea, which is a very polluted area in California. And there's a high, for example, asthma rate within that community. And, you know, he he did a lot of work with the kids, um, again, sort of working with sort of scientific instrumentation for the kids to draw their own conclusion about the quality of air within their community. And once they've used that instrumentation and collected the data and analyzed it and reached their own conclusion, they own it. <laughs> and um, he was a civics teacher. He wasn't a science teacher. He was a civics teacher. And, you know, he had the kids, you know, advocating for change within their communities based on based on their ownership of the of, of, of the data makes perfect sense yeah it's so powerful yeah it's so powerful yeah it's super powerful yeah and actually a lot of i'll just add one little thing you know there's a lot of sort of national geographic has a so a scholars program and a lot of the, the Nat geo scholars are very interested i mean whenever they sort of express themselves around pbl a, a lot of what they explore is is environment-based contexts. It just makes sense. I, I just had another brief question to tie a couple of strings together. Um, I'm just curious, and Karen asked about national resources, and then earlier you talked about Jim Ryan, who is a former friend, and uh, he, he's a current friend, former colleague. Sorry, I'll correct that. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we fallen out with him yet? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't talked to him since I've been down here because uh, I have now that I have a Colombian phone number. I, I didn't do a very good job of telling people that my number was changing. Um, but uh, anyway, um, so he's working on a with a nonprofit to develop curriculum that's aligned to NGSS. So my question is. Are they? Do you know if that work is is uh, embedding or uh, reflecting on the environmental principles and concepts as they develop that curriculum, which at some point would be potentially implemented in California, if not already? So a lot of his units. So Open Syed is the name of his project. Um, a lot of the units do connect to environmental topics, but they're not on cycle with California adoption. So California had its science adoption, and they adopted twenty nine programs. And those 29 programs do include the environmental principles and concepts. Um, Jill, Jim is working on a national curriculum. and But I, I actually need to talk to him about what he's planning to do for California specifically. Um, but something that he and I have talked about is, if you know, how do you take one of, how might you take one of his units and create sort of local extensions? So how might you take a unit um, on, you know, I mean, we've got these world-class institutions here, right? Like the LA Science Museum or the Aquarium of the Pacific or the Monterey Bay Aquarium, where scientists are doing work on things like, for example, ocean literacy. So how might you take something that is a gym unit <laughs> that's been used around the country and how might you deepen it by, you know, by, by opening it up to receiving these local extensions. And so that's what he and I have been talking about, which I think is very interesting because when we when we were first representing the EEI curriculum, um, baked into those curriculum units are what they call California California connections. And when we surveyed teachers on their use of that curriculum, by far the most popular aspect of the 
curriculum was any time there was a California connection, any time where it was directly relevant to that to that a place and particular kids who live in that place. So that's interesting to us, you know. So, like for example, we've got this relationship with the Lawrence Hall of Science, and they have Amplify and FOSS, right? So we've been doing work with them in in Alameda, um, USD, and Alameda USD uses FOSS. And so they at the Lawrence Hall of Science have been sort of making that connection between the FOSS curriculum, which is a sort of off-the-shelf thing, and then the local work that's been taking place in that, in that district and sort of forging those connections that I was talking about um, would be interesting to do with Open Syed. It is fascinating. And I think that sort of someone else we need to maybe get on the show is Jim Ryan, kind of as a, a next step. I don't know. Do you think we could get him to, would he, you think we could get him to show up? He, he'd be late. <laughs> well, we'll be cutting all this out so that we can get him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, don't cut it out. I think it should be the same. Right? <laughs> oh. Well, this has been fantastic and lovely to catch up with you, Karen Cow. And I, I am fascinated by it all. And we, just so everyone knows, we are going to have links to 10 strands and um, the articles, all these different things that Karen mentioned in her conversation. Um, Karen, can I mention one more thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we were going on our, you know, along on our merry way at the beginning of the year, like everybody else. And um, doing the type of work that I've been describing to you. And COVID hit. And we were like, what are we going to do? Like, what are we going to do to be helpful? And so we launched a new initiative in partnership with the Lawrence Hall of Science, Green School Yards America, and San Mateo County of Seved. And that new initiative is called the National COVID-19 Outdoor Learning Initiative. And so the reason we did that is because everybody was scrambling towards distance learning. And we thought, we understand, <laughs> and distance learning is not going to work for most kids. And it's especially not going to work for kids who live in family situations where it's not conducive to them learning at home. For example, if their parents are frontline workers or uh or internet and the digital divide is very real right you know um we were looking at a report the other day where i think you know it was from about 18 months ago but uh there's 6.2 million kids in california and 1.8 million of them didn't have reliable internet access and something like 690,000 didn't have a dedicated device they don't have internet yeah and now Things have changed because there's been a big push to bridge the divide, but still, it's 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 not good. So we we launched this outdoor learning initiative, and it has taken off like a rocket, like more than anything else I've done in ed- in 30 years in education. And you know, primarily, it, it, we argue that you know, for example, COVID spreads 20 times less <laughs> um, outdoors than indoors, and so it's a sort of safety move. But really, it's an equity move. So going back to what we were saying earlier about equity, Tim, you know, and 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 trying to create a situation where schools could um, further 
school systems could, for their most vulnerable students, create opportunities for outdoor learning. And it's a proven model. I mean, it's 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 not like we're inventing something new here. Um, many, many, many European countries are sort of deeply into this already, just as part of the re- the regular design of schooling. Um, and in other pandemics, like a hundred plus years ago, kids were basically moved outdoors. And so that's brand new. You know, we we chose to do it as our response to um, as our response to the pandemic. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that actually was one of my questions that I forgot on my list. How has COVID impacted what you do? So, oh, there you go. <laughs> so woohoo, <laughs> around the corner there. Um, is that link to that initiative on your site? Like, how can people find out more about it? Yeah, it's on our site. Um, and the main body of work associated with it is at Green School Yards America. There's a sort of COVID link at the top. But, but it is on our site, and then we basically send people there. And there's like 60 press articles, you know, from New York Times, PBS NewsHour, Fast Company, The Atlantic, that just picked up the story. I just want to say that I am loving this new model of the podcast where we just let, let smart people talk and we get to learn. I I selfishly am much more educated after this hour than I was after any of the other episodes we did. Ooh, enough. So thank you, Karen Cow. We really appreciate that. Thanks, 10 Strands, for all their great work. And again, thank you for listening. We will have uh, all the links on our show notes once we post this episode. And we hope that you will come back and join us for more episodes um, in the future. Thank you. There will always be those who scoff at intellectuals, who cry out against research, who seek to limit our educational system. The educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. Knowledge is power, more so today than ever before.